Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. Marie Sendak died this week. Sendak was the author of many books, but most famous for the book, Where the Wild Things Are. What was interesting to learn about Sendak is how influenced he was by his childhood and his parents. Sendak, only child of Polish Jews, survived the Holocaust. He grew up without aunts and uncles, cousins and grandparents because they were all killed by the hands of the Nazis during World War II. It was a hard existence for a young boy to have survivor parents who were overly protective and who were so aware, who walked around with bleeding wounds of the atrocities that had happened to them and how it affected Sendak. How a young child, the age of three, four, or five, was constantly in fear of his own health and mortality and realized what death was at such a young age when today we always shield our children from those thoughts and those issues. Furthermore, Sendak dealt with health issues when he was young and he was confined to his bed for an elongated time. And it was those two influences that caused him to write that influential book, where the wild things are. Now raise your hand, high and proud, if you read that book to your child or to your grandchildren or for yourself. So almost everyone in this room has a recollection of that book. And you remember the premise? You remember the boy who dresses up in costume and is with all these other wild things in what is a pretty dark book, both in the way it is illustrated and in its content. And what's the purpose of its book? What's the purpose of what Sendak wrote? One simple thing. To eradicate fear. To eradicate this sense of the goblins and scary things that live out in the world beyond. That if we get there, where they are, it becomes less of a thing to be worried by. What always captured me when I read that book to my children was both the dichotomy of feeling of how dark it felt in some ways, but at the same time, I was captured by how we took this notion of the scary thing and tried to make it go away. In particular, the main character of the book walked around with an outfit on that made him assimilate to where the wild things were and are and how they looked, behaved, and acted. I did not know Sendak. I did not know much about his life. I pray that he forever rest in peace. But I imagine that this book kind of emanated from him as a way of saying that we have a responsibility in life to deal with fear. And there are many things in the world that cause us a form of fear and that make us run away. But sometimes 
The best way to deal with fear is to deal with it head on. To learn about it. To put on the mask or the costume or the outfit and to get into the place where everyone else is. And to learn about it. And helpfully, that begins the process of eradicating fear. Because if we know where the wild things are, but we don't go there, then it's a place, a place that we are afraid of. But if we know where the wild things are and we can walk amongst them, they aren't so wild anymore. Fear is an interesting phenomenon. It controls us. It overpowers us. It guides us in so many ways. All of us live with fears. Whether they're little fears or idiosyncratic fears or big fears. We all live with fears. And they all impact us. Whether it's a fear of spiders or a fear that something will happen, God forbid, to one of our children or a fear of pain or a fear, most of the time, of that which we don't know. I can't begin to count how many times people come into my office and can't quite articulate the fear. But as someone who's seen it on multiple occasions, I can witness the fear they have in their face in any life cycle event that is coming upon them. Whether that fear is in bearing a parent, whether that fear is in their child's first bar about mitzvah and the process that will happen, whether that fear is through a process they're going through in child-rearing or in their marriage, but the fear lives in their face. And what I notice is the antidote to fear almost every time is two prongs. One, education, and two, familiarity. Most people who are afraid of spiders, but who want to get over their fear of spiders, do crazy things, like going into tubs full of spiders. And most people who are fearful of these experiences of perhaps going to their first funeral or preparing for their first bar about mitzvah of their child, what we do is we walk them through the process step by step so nothing catches them off guard. They know exactly what's going to happen. We talk to them with people who've gone through this experience of the emotions that will ensue and they can anticipate. And then it happens. And after it happens, the fear dissipates. And if ever you want proof of that, come sit where I sit and watch a parent as they watch their firstborn child celebrate their bar bat mitzvah and then watch them a few years later as their third or fourth child comes up. And the fear goes away. And that fear is just one example through the lens in which I see the world of many other places where there is fear. I'm going to make a bold hypothesis. I don't make this hypothesis in an effort to offend anyone or to upset anyone, but to share my beliefs. One of the privileges I have in standing at this pulpit. But I believe much of Zachary spoke about today in our pursuit of justice, that a lot of the discrimination that happens in today's world focus particularly at the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender world is based on fear. And that much of the voting that happened in North Carolina this week happened because of fear.
And fear translates in the inverse to a lack of education and to a lack of familiarity. I wrote in my weekly message how I always take incredible pride in a Judaism that enables me with choice. That's the gift God gave me. It's the gift God gave you and you and you. We have choices. Choices that allow us between good and evil, between wrong and right, between making a difference and ignoring someone else's challenge. That's the gift we were given. That's the gift that allows us to understand or explain the atrocities of a Holocaust and the beauties of helping the downtrodden. That is freedom of choice. But there are some things in life that are not our choice. Some things that are beyond our control. Some things that are part of our DNA. As simple as the color of my hair, the pigmentation of my skin, the color of my eye is beyond my control. Now I can do all types of chemical things to try and alter it, but the way that it grows from its roots and its core is a color that was determined without my input. I had no choice in it. It is part of how I was created, just like I had no choice in choosing my gender. And for me, my orientation of being a heterosexual male is not my choice. It is how I was created. And I firmly believe that while we champion in Judaism the choices that all of us have, that people who are born of a sexual orientation, whatever it might be, is not their choice. It is indeed how they were born. And the Bible tells us very specifically that we're all created in God's image. B'Tselem Elohim, Nibra Adam, were taught one of the first lessons on the sixth day of creation. God creates Adam and says, in God's image, I'm going to create the human. That means all of us have a little bit of divine in us. Not some of us, not just males, not just whites, not just people of a person, personal orientation, but all of us have a little bit of the divine in us. Sometimes that fear causes people to come to me and to other people of faith, whether they are Baptist ministers or Protestant preachers or Catholic priests, and say, but the Bible says, the Bible tells us this is forbidden. We read just last week in Parshat Kedoshim, Leviticus 18, that there is a prohibition for a male to lie with a male the way that a male would lie with a female. It says it specifically in the text. It's true. I have no rebuttal. But I would add that that same Bible says many other things that those same people coming to my office don't seem to be knocking on the door and saying, what about this text? And they don't seem to be saying it to the priests or the ministers or the preachers either. Because that same Bible tells us that if we have a rebellious child, we have a responsibility to stone them. Now, many of us laugh because we think about the way our children behave. But remember, before we had children, we were children. And think about the way you behaved and whether you would be here if your parents fulfilled that mitzvah. What does the Bible say about the way we're supposed to eat? What does the Bible say about the way we're supposed to behave on Shabbat? Whether we're supposed to rest and not drive cars and not cause fires and not go to ball games. 
What does the Bible say about the way we're supposed to treat another human being? Where are those people's voices and those moments also? Because the Bible refers to those acts of toeva also, an equal abomination. Thirty-eight times in the Bible is that word used. And my hypothesis still rings true. And it's based on fear, a lack of education, and a lack of familiarity that causes people to hold these political or personal beliefs. To me, what's necessary is a greater understanding, a greater appreciation, a greater acceptance and tolerance that all of us were created in God's image. That all of us have a role in this world, regardless of how we were made, where we're from, or what color skin we have, or what our orientation is. Marie Sendak was a homosexual male. He lived with the same lover for 50 years in Manhattan, a psychoanalyst. And when that psychoanalyst died in 2007, he donated $1 million to the Jewish Family Children's Services in his memory because this psychoanalyst dedicated so many hours of time to helping children in the Jewish community. Sendak never told his parents that he was gay. He was scared to tell them. He was actually quoted in an interview in the New York Times after his parents died by saying he had only wished that he was straight so that he could satisfy his parents and have a traditional marriage. But he couldn't fight it. And it brought him such dissatisfaction. I think about that pain and struggle he dealt with because of those who lived in that fear. And I think of the character that he created in his storybook, Where the Wild Things Are, and the lesson it taught us. And I share with you in closing today a Hasidic tale that reminds me of that book. The Hasidic tale was about a boy who balked every day like a chicken. He wouldn't eat food off a plate. He would only peck at it like a chicken into small pieces. He would walk around clucking his arms as if he had feathers. He spoke no words. He just acted like a chicken. And everyone who came across this boy, all they could think was, how weird, how strange, how different. Laughed and jeered. That's what people did. They made fun of him. They wagged a finger. They made jokes. No one understood him. No one got him. Until one day, someone so desperate to understand the lens through which this boy saw the world, decided that as this boy was pecking away at bread, he would get on his knees, start clucking his arms, and peck away at the bread with the boy. And they started pecking together at the bread and clucking together with their arms. And the most amazing thing in the world happened. The boy smiled. Because for the first time in the world, someone saw the world the way the boy did. Through his lens. On his level. Seeing life the same way. Isn't that a Jewish value? Isn't that education and familiarity all at the same time? Isn't that eradicating fear? Isn't that the very character that Sendak described in the book Where the Wild Things Are? 
by putting on the costume and getting in there with the goblins and the monsters and saying it's nothing to be afraid of? Isn't that our lesson too? There's going to be an election in November and they're going to politicize everything possible. If it rains on a Tuesday, it's going to be someone's fault. This issue is not a political issue. This is a human rights issue. And equality for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people is the civil rights issue of our era, and it is our responsibility to stand on the forefront as the Jewish people have always done with civil rights eras and to embrace them and to welcome them and to balk like a chicken if we feel that they're different. Because they are one of us and we are one of them. And that's what our tradition tells us. It's not an issue that should come up in debate. It's not an issue that should come up for vote. It's an issue that we should feel in our kishkas and should move its way up to our hearts and translate into our brains the way that it does for most people in the world. And if it doesn't, that's okay. My job is not here to splash cold water in your face and make you all see a light that I see. But it is my job to tell you that Judaism tells us to respect and to tolerate and to not push away and to not shun and to not condemn. That's the antithesis of what we are about. We are a people of many voices. My prayer is that we be inspired by that book in the memory of Marie Sendak and we know that we can conquer our fears however it's possible and make the things that scare us or frighten us a little closer to our heart to make the world a better and holier place as is our Jewish responsibility. Amen. Continue.